The following audio is from Sacred City Church on Resurrection Sunday, 2019. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 and 36 through 48. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. And I had the joy of starting this church almost eight years ago now. And I'm blown away by what God has done in these last few years. We've We've grown, we've planted another church in Moline. Uh, We're packed in here like sardines this morning. And uh, we are just really glad that you're here, that you're worshiping Jesus with us on this Resurrection Sunday. And we want want you to know that that, uh, if you were brought by a friend or a family member, we've been praying for you and we are really thankful that you've joined us here this morning. Uh, I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna kind of jump right into things. So I know we've got uh, Easter dinners and all that fun stuff planned ahead of us this morning. So, Father, let me uh, just begin by thanking you 
for bringing us into this gathering today, for protecting us, for watching over us. Thank you that for the reason that we're here. Thank you for Jesus. God, I ask that you would help me, that I am a man with many faults. And so I ask that you would help me preach this morning, preach your word with clarity and boldness, that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords for your glory and our good and the good of this city. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, I want to answer the question this morning, why are we here? Why are we here? Now, some of you, your, your rebuttal, your answer to that might be pretty quick. I'm here because my mom asked me to come. I'm here because my friend drugged me along. I'm here because my spouse or my girlfriend or boyfriend uh, twisted my arm and made me come. Or maybe I'm here because it's Easter and it's just what we do. It's cultural tradition. Now, those answers may be true, but at most, they're only partially true. Church may be the price you pay to eat mom's Easter brunch or dinner or whatever it is, but that's not why we're really here. Why does your mom want you here? Right? Why does your girlfriend or significant other want you here today? Why did your friend invite you here this morning? Well, we're here and they wanted you here because 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man, six years my junior, convinced a bunch of people that he beat death through a bodily resurrection. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, taught that if anyone would put their faith in him, they too could beat death through a bodily resurrection. That's why we're really here this morning. Now, you might roll your eyes at that. One-fifth of Americans today don't believe in God. The none category in religious polls has doubled in the past 10 years. Less than half of us go to church regularly. We've been told by college professors for decades now that religion is dying out and it's a thing of the past, that as we learn and grow and evolve, we won't need religion anymore. Did you know that the Quad Cities is the 27th least church city in the United States, according to a recent Barna poll? That means we don't go to church very much in the Quad Cities. That's what that means. We're the 27th worst at attending church. And yet, by God's grace, we've been continuing to grow through these past eight years, and we've planted a church in Moline, and they're continuing to grow. See, our American society is becoming more and more secular, and yet, this is a statistic that's startling sociologists. As we're growing more and more secular, the world is growing more and more religious. Right now, there are 2.2 billion resurrection-believing Christians all over the world. 2.2 billion with the B. It's a lot, right? That's almost a billion more than the second leading religion of Islam. A billion more Christians. Now, there are, as you survey the religious culture and the religious landscape of our society, there are strands of Christianity that seem to be dying out. Specifically, they're the strands of Christianity that this morning they're preaching a gospel that sounds like this. The resurrection was a metaphor 
for how you can overcome anything in your life. Resurrection as a metaphor, and by and large, those churches are dying out. The branches of Christianity that are thriving and growing all over the world are the ones, here it is, who believe in a literal, physical resurrection. The ones who believe that God acted in the miraculous outside of the scientific method. <gasps> so what I would like to do this morning is answer three simple questions about the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the outline. Is the resurrection plausible? Is it desirable? And third, is it attainable? But before I do, let me first begin by getting us the facts. Now, I say these are facts. Many of these facts are substantiated by outside historical sources other than the Bible. We trust the Bible. We believe the Bible. But it's not the only um, place that we get historical facts from and, and information on the resurrection of Jesus. Specifically, we can find it in the Jewish historian Josephus. So here's some facts for us all to get us on the same page. One, Jesus was a man who was born and lived in first century Palestine. Then around the age, um, this is brief, okay? I'm going brief here. Then around the age of 30, he became an itinerant preacher and teacher preacher, and he gained a reputation in his society for his authoritative teaching style. They said, nobody talks like this guy. This guy is bold and this guy is, he doesn't say, well, maybe. He says, this is what's going to happen. He was very authoritative, but he was also called a worker of miracles. And even Josephus says that he was known um, as a worker of miracles. Secondly, Jesus chose not to operate within the confines of the religious establishment. So he didn't go with religious norms. He didn't come and, and appeal to the Greco-Romans who worshiped a plethora of gods. And he came as a Jew, but he didn't operate within the, the standard operating procedures of the Jewish people. Now, ultimately, this got him in a lot of trouble with the Jewish religious leaders and would ultimately lead to his condemnation. Third, Around 33 years of age, Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was arrested in the middle of night. He was tried illegally. And then he was unjustly condemned. He had literally done no wrong. And he was condemned to a Roman crucifixion. And by this time in human history, the Romans had perfected this art of killing people through crucifixion. They were expert murderers. The practice was so awful that they had to invent a new word to describe it. First off, Romans, they weren't even supposed to speak the word of crucifixion. They weren't even supposed to talk about it. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified because it was beneath their dignity. And the word excruciating, we say that's excruciating. Excruciating literally means from the cross. Watching crucifixion, they had to invent a new word, excruciating. It was that painful, that brutal. Now, here's the, that was a fact. Here's the fourth and last fact I'm going to give you this morning. That should have been the end of it. 
the Jesus movement, right? You get this new young teacher. He's got a teaching in avant-garde styles. He's very authoritative. He's doing like miraculous things and very strange. And like all the young people flock to him like a new guru. Ooh, this guy. And then that guy gets brutally murdered on a cross. And what happens? All the people go back to watching their YouTube videos, right? That's what happens. We, we go back to our other, find our other religious gurus, find our other religious teachers. We want somebody else to give us spiritual, not yet religious advice and make us feel one with the universe. And yet that's not what happened. Here we are on a different continent, 2,000 years later, still talking about this guy. More than that, we sang love songs to him this morning. We said no other name. We're singing about his name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How strange, right? 2.2 billion people, probably maybe more than that, across the world this morning singing love songs to this Jewish man who died 2,000 years ago. So here's the million-dollar question. Given those facts, what happened after the crucifixion that caused this movement to actually pick up steam rather than die out after its founder died, right? If it's just a normal cult, the cult leader dies, and then it, it goes the way of history. Well, the answer the scriptures give us is that Jesus was resurrected to new bodily life. That would be, see, that event alone would be unique enough to start a worldwide movement. This extraordinary claim is also what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Christianity is not about you um, getting one with the universe or you finding yourself or you feeling a little bit better about you and God or finding some more encouragement to live your daily life. Christianity is built off the foundation that this Jewish man says he got up from death on Sunday morning. That's why we, we can't agree with the asinine claim that all religions lead to the same place. That doesn't even make sense. Especially when each one claims different things. We can't hold these isolating claims both in one hand. But back to my outline this morning. Here's the question. Is it plausible is it reasonable and credible to believe that Jesus actually came back to life after being brutally murdered by professional killers? Well, lucky for us, Luke, you could call him Saint Luke, a physician turned historian, gives a very detailed description of the resurrection in the book that he wrote that bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. We read it this morning. I'm gonna read it again. You can open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 24, one through 12. I want us to um, examine the evidence, examine the, the narrative, and let's see, is it plausible that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Chapter 24, verse one. Let me read. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb 
taking the spices they had prepared. So they're going to Jesus' tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These are angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man, that's Jesus's favorite name for himself, must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, you may be thinking, okay, cool, cool story. No thinking person would actually believe this. Resurrection is impossible. This is not describing just life after death. This is something unique. Now, if you struggle to believe in Jesus and you struggle to believe in the possibility of the resurrection, first off, I want you to know, you are in good company. Jesus' own disciples did too. Do you see, they, they didn't believe in this text this morning. In fact, I think we can use our own natural doubt and skepticism, our, our inclination towards doubt and skepticism. I think we can use that propensity to doubt this morning to actually prove the plausibility of the resurrection. And we're going to do this by drawing our attention to our text, well, to two separate groups of people. One, the women in this account, and two, the skeptics. Both of them give credibility to this account of the resurrection. First, let's look at the women. Here in this text, according to Luke, the historian, the first people to discover that Jesus had risen were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, and, quote, other women. That sounds like there were at least five women that went to the tomb, and they were the first to discover that Jesus wasn't there. Now, why is this an important detail that we should not overlook? Because it testifies, because it's there, listen, it testifies to the truthfulness of the reporting because it goes against, it goes directly against the cultural norms of the day. Okay, here, here let me explain it. In the first century Greco-Roman world, women were not seen as credible witnesses. I know we don't like that, just a historical reality. Praise God, it's not that way anymore. It was Greco-Roman society. It was a very misogynistic culture. Women couldn't vote. They couldn't hold public office. And they couldn't testify in court. So I want you to think about that for a minute. If you were Luke and your leader, your spiritual leader had died and somehow you had these nefarious motives and you were gonna keep this thing going, right? 
Like maybe, hey, we want their offerings and their tithes. And so I know Jesus is dead, but let's keep this thing going. And so let's tell everybody, let's, tri- let's invent this story that Jesus has actually rose from the dead. Now, if you're going to do this and you're a male in a male-dominated society, you know what you're not going to have, who you're not going to have as your first witnesses of the credibility of the resurrection? People who couldn't even vote, people who couldn't even testify in court. See, you would have men. Why? Because men were seen as credible. But here in Luke's accounting, he has got women as the first witnesses and that goes directly against the cultural norms of the day, all right? So that gives credibility to this account, right? Now, secondly, on top of that, we wanna look at the skeptics. Do you see how the apostles, who are all men of faith, by the way, do you see how they react to the women? This is another one of, you know, this is not their shining moment. Jesus has risen. Doubt it. (laughs) Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. As we go down in the, in the later of this chapter, we see them doubt. Jesus shows up to them. We see them still having a hard time believing. In fact, Peter, good old Peter, Peter is the only one who dares believe them. Why? Because Peter had screwed up so bad, he was hoping it was true. He had done what he said he wouldn't do, and that was deny Christ several times the night before. Watch Christ get crucified. He's going back to his boat. He's going back to his fishing business. And he knows I've screwed up royally. And the women go, Jesus is resurrected. He's the only one. Let's go on the way. Boom. Everybody else? No, I doubt it. See, again, now listen. If you're an apostle, if you're Luke, and you're writing this story, you're giving this account, and you're trying to build a movement after your founder has died, you aren't going to do that by making all your leaders look like doubters and skeptics, right? All the pastors, you just, you know, this guy, he didn't believe in the resurrection. And he's, you know, you're not, that's not how you're gonna do it, right? This goes against cultural norms, even human nature. Now, on top of this situation, you've got other skeptics, Got one of, the, one of the disciples named Thomas. We love, we've, we've given him the name Doubting Thomas. Thomas says, I can't believe in the resurrection until I put my fingers in the wounds and I touch the wound in his side. This is my favorite. You've got the brother of Jesus, James, the little brother of Jesus, who thinks Jesus went mad. As soon as Jesus starts claiming to be the son of God, James takes a big step back. It's like, I was raised with this guy. He's in my family, ate at my dad's dinner table, called my dad, dad. I don't know about this son of God stuff. And then you've got Saul of Tarsus, a leading Jewish intellectual who rejected Jesus outright as the Messiah, 
and is convinced that Jesus is a false prophet and his whole religious movement needs to be snuffed out the same way Jesus was. So Saul approved of Jesus' crucifixion and then Saul got letters from the synagogue to go persecute Christians and to kill them in order to stop this Jewish movement from furthering, this Jesus-Jewish movement from escalating. And you know what happens to these three hardened skeptics? Every one of them switch teams. They go from hardened skeptics of the resurrection to faith-filled believers willing to give up their very life for the message of Jesus. Now, no thinking person can just dismiss these realities as myth or legend or stories. Think about the most politically minded person you know. They are a hardened Democrat or Republican. Think about them. You meet them one day and all of a sudden they've got the opposite team's t-shirt on. That does not happen for no reason. Right? You're going to want what happened here. What converted you? What changed you? Something had to have happened for this person. That new evidence had to come to light. A new experience had to come to light to get them to change such deeply held beliefs. Well, what caused our hardened skeptics to believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection? Simple. He showed up to them. He walked into the room and let Thomas put his hands on his wounds. He showed up spiritually after the resurrection and after the ascension to Saul on the road to Damascus, and he literally knocks him off the horse in a vision. Let me ask you, what does it take to convince your little brother that you are the son of God? The same thing that it would take for you to convince your little brother that you are the son of God. I can't even convince my little brother to walk close to the pool when I'm around. (laughs) Right? Well, ask James. You know what it took for James to believe that Jesus was the son of God? It took Jesus being crucified before his very eyes and no doubt James going, you moron, Jesus. And then days later, that same Jesus walking into the room and going, who's the moron? (laughs) James probably raised his hand. So here's my point. Given our natural proclivities to doubt and skepticism, when you read the resurrection account here in Luke, it is both plausible and credible. Is it miraculous? Absolutely. The resurrect now when you look at the evidence that these skeptics get converted and they eventually die for Jesus, right? You've got these this, uh, uh, these women giving the first credible witness in the account. Both of these realities testify that the resurrection, the real resurrection of Jesus, makes the most sense of the data. Let's read in verse thirty-six through forty-three. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. Again, 
Listen, Jesus didn't show up to them and the disciples were like, knew it. <laughs> Planning on it. I was waiting. No, they see him and they're like, what is it? And like most of us, oh, it must be. A, I mean, they're seeing something. It must be a spirit. That's their answer. Keep reading. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, that is a great question. One, it's very practical. It's very reasonable. Why do doubts arise in my heart? Because you died two, two and a half days ago. That's why. I've never seen somebody get killed the way that you got killed and then show up. That's why doubt arises in my heart. But on the other hand, I saw this guy walk on water. On the other hand, I saw this guy raise the dead. On the other hand, I saw this guy put his hands on blind eyes and they recovered their sight. On the other hand, I heard this guy preach and something inside me stirred. I should have known the son of God can do whatever he wants and that, in, and that includes defeating death through his own death and resurrection. Keep reading. Where'd I stop? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still, look at, oh, this is this term here. And while they still disbelieved for joy. Dis, huh? Disbelieved for joy. They're saying this. I can't believe this is true, but I'm happy about it. <laughs> He's here. I can't understand it. I can't explain it, but I'm happy about it. Keep reading. And they were marveling, right? He said to them, have you anything here to eat? First, if you're making up a story, is this the story you make up? Jesus shows up, I'm hungry. First thing he does is go to the fridge. What's up? Right? Have you here anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it before him and ate him. Now, what's going on here? Well, here is where we're going to look at, is it desirable? I think we've answered the question, is it credible or is it plausible? Is the resurrection desirable? What's the big deal about it? Is it anything special? First off, I want, I want to show you what Jesus is doing here because he's, what he's doing in this account, showing up physically and letting them touch his body and seeing this, he's kind of going against the grain of the two predominant cultural narratives of the day of what happens when you die. Okay, the Greco-Roman world, and Greek thought, this is simplifying things a little bit, but they mainly thought, um, they thought negatively of the body and they thought negatively of death. You wanted to avoid death. And the, but they thought of the body as a cage. The body is a cage. And once you die, you're finally free from the body to go back and be one with the universe or be a spirit or go to wherever you want to go. But it was actually a good thing. Death was actually a good thing in the end because you finally were freed from the physical world and you could exist as a spirit or whatever. Actually, we have a lot of people that believe this today. They're going to be one with the universe or whatever it is. And then on the opposite side of that, the Jewish people 
thought that the resurrection could actually happen, that God could give new life to our physical bodies, but it was only going to happen at the end of all human history when the Messiah came back to set up his eternal kingdom and make the whole world the kingdom of God, then it could happen. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's going against both of those cultural narratives and he's saying, guess what? This is Christianity, his movement isn't about life after death in the spiritual world. Touch my body, give me the fish. Spirits don't eat fish. He's going against this Greek thought. I'm not one with the universe. I'm not in La La Land or heaven or Valhalla or whatever you want to call it. I'm here. I'm back from the dead. I still have scars. I look a little different. This is something unique. No other story has this. No other religion has this. So he's cutting across the grain of Greek thought, but he's also cutting across the grain of Jewish thought. He's saying, oh yeah, you thought the resurrection is going to happen at the end of time? You're right, it is. But it also starts now with me. I'm the firstborn of the dead. That's what that term means. I'm the first of all those who will be resurrected. Now, what this does, Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection proves at least two things that are unique to Christianity. One, this physical world is good. God loves it so much that he's redeeming the whole world, our physical bodies. Christianity is not about you going to heaven, some spiritual place when you die. I know somebody told you that, they lied to you. Christianity is about if I die right now, yes, I will go to heaven to be with my God, but he's coming back to renew all of the world, to remove all the stain of sin, all the brokenness, to redeem everything that we love about this place and make it the place for his kingdom on earth where we get to be on a new restored earth forever, doing the things that we love, worshiping God running really fast, climbing mountains, making things, eating good food to the glory of God, drinking good drinks. Many of us have been so turned off by this idea that we go to heaven and we float on a cloud and there's a spiritual world out there. That's not the end of the story for Christianity. Everything we love about the world gets renewed and restored and all the evil and brokenness gets removed. Jesus' resurrection proves that. Notice, he still has scars, and yet he can eat, sit down and he can eat fish. He has a physical body. And secondly, we see the obvious, life after death is possible. That's the other reality of Jesus' resurrection. That though Friday looked, and this is every Christian should get this in their bones, Friday looks like all is lost, but Sunday makes sense of Friday, right? There is a Sunday morning coming, and every time we have brokenness in our life, every time we have loss and we have death and we have to bury, to love, we have to bury a loved one, we have to hold on to this reality, Christ beat death, and so can I. Now, first of all, I just want to ask you, is it desirable do you want those two things to be true? Do you want this world not just to get thrown away, right, to hell in a handbasket, let it go, and we're going to exist somewhere, spiritually speaking? Or do you really want to have a renewed and restored physical earth where real things matter? 
Do you want to have life after death that you can have an eternal meaning and eternal purpose more than just getting people fit, more than just helping people's physical body, more than just helping people get their finances in order, more than just building widgets at the factory? Do you want to have an eternal purpose that you can tap into? Yes. So I would say, yes, it is desirable. The resurrection is, the, is desirable. I have a theologian and scholar that I really appreciate, uh, Don Carson. He said this, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> Amen. Look at verse 44, and this is me closing. Wow. <laughs> Miracles still happen. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Old Testament, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now that's something. They have memorized the Old Testament. They knew all the stories, and yet they didn't understand them. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, that's the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Look at verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, what does Jesus' resurrection have to do with the message here that Jesus says, go proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins? This gets down to the core message of Christianity. Now listen, there's many people, you might even be here and say, okay, Justin, the resurrection is, maybe it's plausible, maybe it's credible, maybe it's desirable, but what does that have to do with me? Well, the resurrection means something. Jesus kind of classified it as the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. That the resurrection of Jesus is news that has to be proclaimed and that news has something to do with repentance. What is repentance? Repentance literally means a change in thought and a change in direction. I was living my life this way, now I'm changing and I'm embracing some new beliefs and I'm living my life this way. Understanding the resurrection has something, it, it should confront us. It shouldn't go in line with the way that we live our life. It should challenge us in such a way that we have to reevaluate our held beliefs about the afterlife, about the possibility of the resurrection, about forgiveness and how to obtain forgiveness and reconciliation with the one God over all things. That good news can be summed up really quickly like this. God made us all and he made us good. Every human being, no matter color, creed, nationality, is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. 
And yet we have fallen from grace. We have sinned and rebelled against God. We said, I'll do it my way. Thanks for the advice, but I prefer this way of living my life. And because of that, listen, God loves us so much. This, this, one of the songs said it today, that he didn't want heaven without us, and he sees us doing stupid stuff, hurting one another, sinning against one another, sinning against him. And so what does he do? He doesn't just condemn us all to hell, which would have been just and good and right for him to do. Instead, he sends his own son to come rescue us. And how does he rescue us? He lives a sinless life, a perfect life. He lives that life in our place because we can't do it. He did it for us. And then the Bible teaches us that sin or rebellion from God ends in death. The reason we all die is because we all sin. Jesus didn't sin. He wasn't worthy of death. He didn't deserve death. But what he did was took our sins upon himself and he died the death that we deserve. Then... Three days later, Jesus defeated death and rose victorious from the grave, proving that he was the sinless son of God, that God had accepted his sacrifice. God had accepted the payment that Jesus made for our many sins, and now that we could be forgiven for all of our sins through the grace of Jesus Grace isn't Jesus goes, oh, I don't really pay attention to your sins anymore. No, no, no. Grace is, I know every one of your sins, but I paid for them on the cross. I took the punishment for you. I went before the judicial bench of God and God condemned me and called me guilty for your sins. That's what grace is. And now we get let free, set free. We get forgiven. We get what's called the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life is credited to our account now by faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And we can be forgiven by grace. We can be adopted into the family of God. We can be filled with his spirit and we can live forever with him in heaven and then on a newly restored earth. Now, is that good news to you or is it just kind of float over your head? Think about it like this. You've been having headaches, annoying headaches, don't, they don't really put you down on the couch. They don't really knock you out. Just frustrating. You go to the doctor and they do some scans and they see that you have a tumor on your brain stem and it needs to be operated on right away. I think this is a good analogy of our spiritual lives. We've got kind of benign symptoms of unhealth, kind of like the headache. What are our symptoms? Our symptoms are Anxiety, depression, loneliness, lack of passion, feeling a little off today. I need to post that selfie to get some likes to feel a little better about myself. Lack of passion, lack of drive, lack of joy, or a deep sense of purpose. Now, most of these things, they just kind of feel like a dull headache. In the past, pastors were called physicians of the soul. That we were meant to diagnose our conditions. That you have, we all have a spiritual tumor. 
It's called sin and it's latched onto our heart and our mind and it messes up everything in our inner world. And a lot of times it can just be felt like this dull ache, this boredom, this brokenness. Now you might not think you've got a problem. It's just a headache, not a big deal. But we all do. We are infected. And the question is, will we let this thing grow and kill us? Or will we let Jesus remove the tumor from us? And that's my last question this morning. Is the resurrection attainable? Is it something we can get in on? Can we get new life? Can we get the tumor removed? Jesus was very clear. This is what he says in John chapter 11. Verse 25 through 27, Jesus says this to a woman. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Again, that's what he's doing. How do we get in on the resurrection? It's too good to be true. We repent of our unbelief. We begin to doubt our doubts. We begin to be skeptical of our skepticism. We push through the barriers of doubt and skepticism and we put our faith in the risen and reigning Jesus Christ who lived the life we don't live and he died the death that we deserve and he rose to new life to show us that that can be ours. And so this morning, what we're about to do is we're going to come down and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, what happened on the night that he was betrayed. And this is uh, the body and the blood of Christ that Christ is spiritually here with us. Now listen, we ask only those who have believed to put their faith in Christ and who have been baptized come and partake of the supper with us this morning commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection. If you haven't, I ask you this morning, put your faith in Christ. Don't take the meal. Take Christ by faith. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. Father, I thank you for this beautiful morning. I thank you for this miraculous event that happened in human history that we changed our date to represent that after you died, things are different. After you were resurrected, things changed in the world. Would you change people even now? Give them faith to believe. Strengthen the faith that they already have and meet us here in the supper by your spirit and in the singing. We worship you and you alone this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.